Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. On our last message of the current series, I Will Tell, Dr. Newfeld shares some final thoughts on how we can be prepared to give an answer for our faith. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, as we go back to the Bible. I have dreamt about a day when it would be impossible to live in Canada without having to decide what to do with Jesus. That is, to quote another, I have a dream. I have a dream that every man, woman, and child in Canada will be confronted with the gospel. They will know what the gospel is and know what the gospel demands, and they will need to choose. Now, in order to get that to happen, Christians in our country will have to be talking about Jesus all the time at work, in our schools, across the back fence, and among our naturally occurring friendship networks. But as all of us know, a dialogue about Jesus or a dialogue about faith or a dialogue about the gospel is not a one-way affair. If we want to be honest, open, and respectful in our conversations, it means we both speak and listen. All Christians want to share with others what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection means, but some people are not ready to hear, and that may be for a number of reasons. I want you to imagine the truth of the gospel as a great and ancient castle. But before you get to the castle, there are not just one, but a series of moats in the way. You can tell people that they ought to get to the castle and consider the castle, but they're looking at the moats, and they may say, these moats are uncrossable. We correct them, saying, it's not about the moats, it's about the castle. But all the while, they're looking at the moats. Now, I say this because there have been some evangelistic methods that teach that we should avoid certain questions. So, when someone asks a question like, what about evolution? We should find a way of steering them back to the cross. We say, well, let's leave that for another time. Let's talk about what God has done in Jesus. Get them to the castle. But my thinking is that when someone is seriously examining the faith, one must deal with the questions people are actually asking. I don't trust organized religion. Aren't Christians intolerant of other people? Isn't faith the opposite of reason and evidence? Doesn't the presence of suffering argue against a good and an all-powerful God? Isn't church boring? Hasn't Christianity been disproved? Isn't the Christian faith in decline and won't it soon be irrelevant? I don't think I like or trust some Christians. Aren't religions responsible for so much hatred and weren't all manner of wars inspired by religion? Now, these are the moats that prevent someone from getting to the castle. And somehow, I believe we're going to have to put some drawbridges across the moats. We need to help people to see that the moat is actually not uncrossable at all. But we have to take the moat seriously. And of course, we begin by forming friendships with non-believers and by talking about our faith. Unless we do these two things, the moats will remain and the castle will always seem distant. But if we enter into a dialogue, we may be asked hard questions, questions that take some insight and some thought. Of course, none of that's new. In the early church, all manner of misconceptions developed around the gospel, and these misconceptions kept some people from considering the claims of the faith. And as you know, the Christian faith began among the Jews, and one of the first questions Christians had to respond to was, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, how could he be defeated by the Romans and die on a cross? That's a great question, and an answer needs to be given. But there were other questions also from the Jewish community. How can Christians not make circumcision a necessity and still claim adherence to the faith of Abraham? Don't Christians disregard the law of Moses, and aren't they just simply a heretical sect? 
These were the moats that kept ancient Jewish people from the castle. And as the gospel went out into the Gentile world, more questions and more misconceptions. Very early on, Christians were charged with being atheists, and that sounds surprising to some of us, but that's because they refused to acknowledge the reality of the gods in the Greek and Roman pantheon. So were they atheists? Well, that was a moat. Then there was the belief that when Christians celebrated communion, known in those days as the love feast, a rumor began to circulate that this was in fact an orgy. Then came the charge of cannibalism. Christians said they ate flesh and drank blood at their love feasts. Who knew what evil they did at these meetings? Another moat. A very serious charge was that Christians were anarchists, revolutionaries, because they refused to pledge their loyalty to Caesar. That is, they would not proclaim that Caesar is Lord. This was a very dangerous charge, as it would soon bring the wrath of the Roman Empire down upon their heads. Another moat, a very large one. I want to do a brief study of something that was said to believers by the Apostle Peter to help them in their gospel presentations. The book of 1 Peter was written somewhere in the mid-60s AD. Peter writes his book in order to encourage Christians who were living in the north and west of what was then called Asia Minor, what we now call the nation of Turkey. These people were beginning to encounter opposition. And when these people who were largely Gentiles first came to Christ, the first thing they did is they started stop worshiping the gods of their empire. This change in behavior was painful because now they were viewed as being unpatriotic. But there was more. They also stopped worshiping the gods of their cities. People charged that the Christians were turning against their city. But many of these people, new believers, were also skilled tradespeople. And in those days, trade guild meetings were held in the temple in which worship of idols was a part. Now these new believers were not there anymore, and the economic ramifications were instant. People were boycotting their shops. But there's more. Extended family gatherings also took place in pagan temples, and again the Christians were absent. What's fascinating is that many non-Christian people who attended the temple did not really believe in these gods either, but they came and offered token worship as a sign of civic allegiance. But believers refused even this. What they taught was what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 10, 20-21. No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So they weren't eating in the temple anymore, and the result was predictable. Social ostracism, insults, public shame, economic persecution. And as Christians were reeling in a world that thought them to be anti-social troublemakers— Where great moats existed to prevent people from getting to the gospel, Peter writes to them, explaining to them how they should act. Now, against this background, we come to our text. It's 1 Peter 3, 13-16. Let me read it to you. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
Let's consider the context. Verse 13 asks, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for good? And at the outset, the believers in Asia Minor would have said, well, lots of people will harm us, our neighbors, our city, the trade guilds, temple, the Romans, we're vulnerable. And what Peter is trying to do in verse 13 is to reinforce behavior among Christians that will lessen misunderstanding, that will endear God's people to the wider pagan culture. No one, he says, persecutes people for being gentle and kind and loving and caring. That's the kind of behavior that he's talking about here. The culture you live in may misunderstand your faith, but if you become known as a people of graciousness, you'll be half the way home. And by the way, this is still important today. Nothing is so disarming as a person who forgives their enemies, as someone who looks for opportunities to bless others who volunteers in social endeavors, who helps in their local school, who looks for a way to encourage others. These kinds of attitudes are open doors for the gospel. But where Christians are seen as ungracious, the size of the moat grows larger and the way to the castle to the gospel is uncrossable. That's the first step to building bridges. Then Peter adds, even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, the grammar here suggests this, in the unlikely event that people do persecute you for being gracious, don't be discouraged. You're in fact blessed. Now, how is it that in an increasingly hostile culture, you can be free from intimidation? Because, says Peter, in your heart, you're regarding Christ as Lord. That is, he is fully equal with a father. He is the second person of the Trinity who is the one God and that he rules over all, and as ruler, all things are subject to him, even the hostility of your culture. But of course, Peter is not just telling us to regard Christ as Lord, but to regard Christ the Lord as holy. Now, what's he trying to communicate? Now, there's a background to that statement, and it comes from Isaiah 8:13, which says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Now, if you're going to fear anybody, says Peter, Fear God, fear Christ, regard him as holy, and let your fear be of him and him alone. And once that happens, it will take away your fear of people, even people who might intimidate and persecute you. Only the one who fears God can know what it is not to fear man. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how to be prepared, how to answer anyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that we have. Have you ever felt discouraged, downtrodden, and fearful when you try to share your faith? I think all of us have felt this, especially when we fear man. We also put up walls or barriers to the gospel when we don't have the right attitude of love and grace towards non-believers. This introduction has given us a real awareness of these pitfalls that are all too common. But God is there to help, and He'll give us a second chance as we learn to fear and trust Him. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will show us the principles that we can learn when giving the reason for the hope that is in us. Thanks so much for joining us today. And have you secured your place yet for the first ever Israel experience? From October 30th to November 9th, we'll be traveling to one of the most unique tourist destinations in the world. Joining us to guide us on our journey will be Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway from Laugh Again, and musical guests, the Weebs. Along the way, everyone will get a chance to see world-famous sites, including the Mount of Olives, the Wailing Wall, Gethsemane, and much, much more. 
The tour is perfect for young and old, providing a rich itinerary that is far beyond a typical vacation experience. So register today by visiting backtothebible.ca or by calling us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's rejoin Dr. Neufeld for the second half of today's program. Let's start with a principle. Evangelists need to be courageous. If the truth is told, there are some believers who are actually intimidated by the world. And so if that's you, you might say to yourself, well, the best thing to do is to believe the gospel, but to keep it fairly private. You've been flying under the radar, so to speak. And up till now, very few of the unbelievers you interact with know you're a believer, or even if they do, you've never entered into a dialogue with them. The reason? Fear. But if you learn to regard Jesus, the Lord, as holy, it will give you a courage to enter into the arena of discussing your faith openly with others. And there's another feature that Peter has already mentioned. When we enter into that dialogue, it sure helps to have a good reputation with people. Okay, let's now go on to the second half of verse 15. First, Peter says, always be prepared. What is behind this statement is that Christians have already thought about some of the questions non-Christians are asking. They know about some of the misconceptions non-Christians have about the faith. They've become deeply intimate with their faith. They are well-grounded. And what's more, they have begun to grasp that there is a rational basis for the faith. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that unless you're educated, don't attempt evangelism. But I am saying that when you begin to share your faith, people will ask you questions you might not be able to answer. And when that happens, you can do one of three things. First of all, you can fake it. You can make up the answers as you go. That's always bad. Or you can say, well, all those questions are just from the evil one. Well, this is a failure to listen to what people are asking. Or you can decide to get prepared. You can begin to study. You can begin to ask, to understand. You can begin to answer the questions that people are asking. Now let's go to the next phrase. The word in the next phrase says, always be prepared to give a defense. The Greek word for defense is the word apologia. From this word comes an area of Christian studies called Christian apologetics. It's the field in Christian theology that is devoted to giving a rational defense for the Christian faith. So people in the field of apologetics often say things like, the heart cannot rejoice in what the mind rejects as false, and helping the believer think, and helping the thinker believe. And the idea behind this is that sometimes apologetics, which we would think is all about evangelism, has in fact another benefit. Sometimes the study of apologetics is a great help for Christians themselves because many of us have the very same questions that they have, and we'd love to have answers for them. Questions like, is it ever okay to have doubts? And what role does scientific evidence play into my faith? You know, very early on, soon after coming to Christ, I struggled with my own doubts. I wondered to what extent I had come to believe simply because of the, some of the emotional struggles in my life. Was there any objective reason for believing? How did I really know there was a God? How did I really know that Jesus was the Son of God? How did I really know that the, the Bible was the Word of God? Were these kinds of things, things I should simply accept on faith, that is, without any corroborating evidence, or was faith actually something that rested on the sufficiency of the evidence? 
Now, I can't tell you the delight I had as I was being discipled by Christian teachers who believed that asking hard questions was not wrong, but was welcome. And I began to read. I mean, very early on, and this takes me back a number of years, I read two books that changed my life, both by a theologian named Francis Schaeffer. And the books were entitled, The God Who Is There, and He Is There, and He Is Not Silent. And even though Schaeffer is now long dead, I, I still recommend these books to students who attend universities. His thinking profoundly shaped me in my early years. But out of that came a conviction that the Christian faith was defendable. Indeed, it was reasonable. It could answer the hard questions. In fact, it did more. It invited non-Christians to face their own hard questions. Indeed, they too needed to defend their worldview. As I went off to university, I was constantly defending my faith and asking non-believers to defend their faith or their worldview. Those years were for me some of the best years of my life as I learned to depend more and more on the truths of Scripture. And out of that was born in me a conviction. All Christians can be trained to defend their faith. We don't need to be afraid of tough questions. In fact, we should not only answer them, but we should learn to ask some of our own tough questions of those who do not believe. And so remember where we've been. First of all, we must be courageous. We must learn to speak about our faith, and we must need to speak to others about what it is we've come to believe. We must make faith a part of our regular conversation, and we must have honorable conduct so that we cannot be charged with bad, ungracious attitudes. But we must be prepared to give real answers. Peter speaks of making a defense for our faith when asked. Now, notice the last part of this verse. Here they ask you for the reason for the hope that is within you. And I notice that in this verse, the non-Christian is doing the asking. That's because the believer has been bold enough to share, and as a result, the unbeliever asks. Perhaps the conversation goes this way. I've noticed that you refuse to pour out libations to Caesar and to call him Lord, but I also noticed that you've expressed your willingness to honor the emperor. How, how do you reconcile that? You know, I recently had a conversation with a university professor, and it went this way. He said to me, how do you define faith? I have heard that faith means believing in something that can't be substantiated by evidence. Is that what you believe? And with that question came a dialogue. What we're being asked to do then is to give a reason for the hope that is within all of us. Listen to how God addresses us in Isaiah 1 verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. I've noticed that this offer, which is an offer to come and be forgiven, begins with an offer to reason. All people who share their faith should be trained to use Scripture as we talk about our faith. But we're not quoting Scripture as if it were a missile or a club to win an argument. We're quoting Scripture in a way that not only appeals to the heart, but also appeals to the mind. You see, in order to enter into dialogue that is genuinely fruitful, people need to feel like they're being taken seriously. And we must be reasonable. Peter's not done. He adds one more feature. Peter says, but when we give a defense, we must do so out of gentleness and respect and fear. Not afraid of people, but fear to represent our Lord rightly. In other words, don't fly off the handle and start shouting with an unbeliever. Don't think that arguments are going to win anyone. You might have won an argument, but you may have lost the person. And the point is to win the person. 
You see, no matter who the person is, and regardless of their perspective, they're still human beings. They're made in the image of God, and they are loved by the God who made them. And from us, respect is demanded. And finally, Peter speaks about having a good conscience. That is, when the conversation is done, can we in good conscience say, we've represented Christ well. We've treated the people we've communicated with as image bearers of God, but God has received the glory from the conversation. See, that's our commitment. And that's what this week has been about. In fact, that's what this this year is about at Back to the Bible. I will tell. We will tell. We will pray. We will ask God to change our hearts from the cold hearts that don't seem to care about others to a zeal for evangelism. I will declare the deeds of God. That's where we've been going. And furthermore... We will learn to be skillful in the way we do so. So I hope you see evangelism, well, it's a way of life. It's not a program that we do for maybe a month or maybe a year, but it's the way in which all believers are trained to live. We can make a difference in this country. We can begin to tell it's possible to see our country transformed in our generation. If you would just begin to believe and ask God to change your heart, watch what he does. Make a commitment this year to the Lord that says, Lord, I've heard this, and I commit to you, I will tell. John, this has been a great series, a great series, a clarion call in some respect to a nation to get back to teaching the Word of God, to representing Christ and telling the story. I wonder if you just take a minute right now and just pray for our nation, the revival of our nation. Yeah, let's pray together. Father, I pray that Canada would again turn to you. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that the hearts of men and women would be changed. I pray, Lord, that hunger would develop in the hearts of many. And I pray that the name of Christ would be heard um, in every place, in our news media, in our schools, in our, uh, in our public places where we gather. Father, wherever we are, I pray that Christ would be heard and that you would call many to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. John, thank you again for the great series, I Will Tell. A great challenge to us as Christians to go out and tell the good news of Jesus Christ to our neighbors, to our friends, to our communities right across this nation. And we look forward to continuing the I Will Tell theme throughout the rest of this year. Remember to join us again on Monday for more of Back to the Bible Canada. When it comes to evangelism, where do you get your source of courage and wisdom? As Christians, the answer must always be God himself and the Bible. I hope that this lesson has greatly blessed you as we've been reminded of the things such as the importance of fearing God to help us get over the fear of man and having real answers for why we believe through a proper study of apologetics. I pray that this timely message and the entire series will speak deeply into your hearts and into our minds as we make this our personal commitment. I will pray. I will tell. I will be bold. I will fear and obey God. I will bring others into his glorious light. This is the heart of who we are at Back to the Bible Canada as we seek to influence our nation with the truth of his word. I hope you'll join us next week as we feature special guest teacher, Pastor Paul Johnson, who will lead us through a series called An Introduction to the Glory of Christ.
You know, it's our desire that this series has inspired and impacted you as Dr. Newfeld has given us compelling reasons why we must share Christ and how we can do so effectively. The I Will Tell series captures what we're all about. And we want to spark a movement across Canada to revive people with the timeless and life-changing truths of God's Word. Over the next several months, we'll be developing some initiatives and ways you can get involved in our mission. So stay tuned for developments on the air, on social media, in the mail, and many, many more. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.